Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, there are times when you're in church and you just say, this is a sweet place to be. And uh, did that feel that way to you all this morning? You know, you go through uh, probably the last several weeks with uh, things like graduation and getting ready for vacation and just the end of a year like uh, most of us experience in May. And you come in here on a morning where God blesses us with some cool air and a rain that's somewhat symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And uh, then you hear these marks of health in the sharing today. And I was just sitting there listening to those, and I was just thinking, this is a great place to be. This is a sweet place where God is alive, where people's lives are being changed, where people are taking steps of faith, and uh, that's good for us to experience today. And probably appropriate that this morning, as you look at the message, the message is an even greater experience. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. And though we've been in Acts, I'm going to start the sermon in Acts by having you turn to Psalm 34 just for a moment. I want to read a section of Scripture that I think will help get us started. Psalm 34, if you turn there with me, this is a psalm of God's providing for an individual, David, and uh, he talks about this provision, this experience that he has, but I think it uh, really summarizes some of what we've experienced in our sharing today. But let me read starting in verse 4, because I want you to feel this guy's life. Uh, this is not just uh, a statement of doctrine here. This is not acknowledging a creed. This is coming out of the passion and the heart and the gut of this guy's life. And he says, I sought the Lord. And he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, this afflicted man, cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The psalmist is sharing some of his experiences that he and others that he had known have had with the Lord. And I think this brings to mind a question that's maybe important for us here this morning as we introduce this even greater experience. And the question is, as you look at those verses, are these kind of experiences to be considered normal or abnormal for the Christian life? These kind of experiences that you read here, are these the kind of things that during the course of this next week should be in some ways true of you? Or are these things only reserved for people who are kings like David or apostles like Paul or people of ecclesiastical stature or great saints? Or are the things we read here kind of the normal everyday Christian life? 
Look at verse 8, because David invites us into his experience. It's a great statement. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Oh, taste. He's asking you to join him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You might underline the word taste there. It's an interesting Hebrew word. It simply means, uh, literally, come experience the Lord and see that He is good. The word means to perceive, uh, to sense something, to, to come into full understanding. And you know, you can never come into full understanding of something until you've experienced it. You know, when somebody hands you that new flavored ice cream at Baskin Robbins or TCBY, what do they say? They say, come on, taste it. And you're wondering, what is that gonna taste like? But you know, they can describe it, they can describe the colors, the ingredients, they can go on and on about it. And you can acknowledge all of that from a distance. But the reality is, until you actually taste it, you won't really know it. You know, there are a lot of people whose whole life, their whole spiritual life is from a distance. They know all about God. They know all the liturgy. They know all the creeds. They know all the doctrine. In fact, they're real good at entertaining doctrinal experiences with other people, but what they have never had is a true experience with the living God. And so something lacks in all of that. You miss something greatly. The message, before the message, we sang that great Irish, I guess you felt that Irish flavor of Be Thou My Vision the Irish flavor of that song. And it's a hymn, if you follow the words, that calls for more than just knowing about God. It's calling you into an experience with God. You'll never know what crawfish etouffee tastes like till you taste it. You'll never know what marriage will taste like until you are. And you will never have a vision of God until you have experienced some authentic moments with Him through His living Spirit who indwells you, whether it's to deliver you out of your fears or rescue you in a time of trouble or answer a prayer or seal you with a special sense of assurance that you're His child or open doors and give you favor with men. Until you have those kind of experiences with God, you live your life from a distance. And David says, oh, come and taste Taste him and see that the Lord is good. I think the normal Christian life for us when we are full of faith in the Holy Spirit should be of experiences with God. There should be these moments where we feel his presence around us. We know he's opening doors for us. He's moving in our life. And so with that as a backdrop, now turn over to Acts chapter 8. And I want you to look at the experience of a guy who's an ordinary guy. He's not one of the leaders of the church, but this whole chapter will surround him and some of the experiences that he has because he actually believes that God is with him. Now, can I say one other thing too, even about us who we've known God and we've tasted of God, but maybe for the last few moments, as I've mentioned some of these things, you're looking back over your life the last few weeks and months and maybe even year and you, you know, you go, you know, I remember when God was really moving in my life. But I hadn't had that in a while. I wanted you to know, I have discovered in the Christian life, it's real easy 
to go from some of these experiential moments where you really believe in God, you're getting up in the day and you're believing God that he's going to go with you to where you fall off of that plateau down to kind of a mundane, ritualistic, mechanical, spiritual life where you're just going to do it yourself. And you've been plodding along, okay, but it's kind of dry. And I want, you, I want to call you back this morning to a life of faith where you're believing God for the things that you're doing and asking Him to partner with you in those experiences and calling upon Him and see if you can't taste Him this week. That's what this is all about. Well, this is about a man named Philip. You'll look there in verse 5 of chapter 8, and it speaks about Philip going down to Samaria. And as I've mentioned, Philip was not a church leader. He was, uh, at least not at this time, he was not a teacher. He was certainly not an apostle there in Jerusalem. In fact, if you'll notice, he wasn't even a Jew. Uh, Philip here is a Greek, and he's a Greek layman who the apostles had asked a few chapters back to wait on tables. He was a waiter for widows, which is uh, an exalted position of service, but it's not necessarily in the minds of people around some great strategic uh, position of influence. But I want you to look back at Acts 6 because it mentions something about him that I think will help us as we move through. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, it says, and this is that moment where they call these men to be waiters. It says, And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation. Now notice this next phrase. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, whom we may put in charge of this task, and then we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The statement found favor with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. There's Philip. This ordinary man, except in one area, and that is he really believed God for the everyday of life. And that led him into some great experiences. Now, Acts 8 brings us to some of these experiences that Philip finds himself in because in Acts 8, starting in verse 5, we see him, if you'll notice, they're going to the city of Samaria. And what we know, if we just look back, is that in Acts chapter 7 and starting in 8, there's this great persecution that now has come upon the whole church. And it's led in part by this man Saul, this uh, Jewish zealot, this rabbi who would later become the great apostle, but he's been one leading the charge to persecute the church. And Philip's good friend Stephen, who's been waiting tables with him, has just been stoned to death for his faith. And so Christians in the Jerusalem area are needing to flee, some for safety of their life, others because in the midst of persecution, you can't put down truth. Communism discovered that, by the way. You can't suppress truth. And so these men begin to move out into different regions and preach the gospel, and Philip is one of those. So let me read verses 4 and 5 for you. It says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip, who was once just this coat layman waiting tables, has his whole new vision for his life. And he begins to go down to the Samaria, and he begins proclaiming Christ to these Samaritans. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they saw him and heard him performing these great signs and preaching this great message. 
I find it interesting that it was Philip who went to Samaria and began preaching the gospel for the first time. If you go back to chapter 1 of uh, Acts and look at verse 8, we won't need to do that, but the apostles have been called by Jesus Christ to go into the world to preach the gospel. And he says you're to do that starting in Jerusalem and then where? Samaria and then the outermost parts of the world. But if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, where we are, where do you see the apostles? Everybody else scattered. But the apostles, it says there, they stayed in Jerusalem. They did not move out. They stayed there. And I asked myself the question, why did they stay there? And if you want to put a word down that just summarizes why they didn't move out, it's this word, racism. That's why they didn't move out. Racism. Because racism in this day, even with all the events surrounding this, was a big deal, just like it's a big deal today. And these apostles were Jews, and Jews had no dealings with Samaritans at this point because the racism between them, unfortunately, was bigger than their spiritual lives. Listen to William Barclay, the English historian. He says, The quarrel between the Jews and the Samaritans were centuries old. Back in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was Samaria. As conquerors did in those days, they transported the greater part of the population and settled strangers in the land. Then in the 6th century, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem, and its inhabitants were carried away to Babylon. But they completely refused to lose their identity and remained stubbornly Jews. Now, we've seen that in our studies in Ezra. In the 5th century B.C., they were allowed to return and rebuild their shattered city under Ezra and Nehemiah. And in the meantime, those who were left in the northern kingdom had intermarried with the stranger races who had been brought in by the Assyrians. And when the people of the southern kingdom returned and set to build their city, these people around Samaria offered to help. But that help was contemptuously refused because they were no longer pure Jews. And from that day onward, there was an unhealed breach and a bitter hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Somewhat like we see in Bosnia that occurs today. Because what's taking place there after I lived in Poland one summer just a few years ago, and they told me about the Bosnia and the Serbs and how that all goes back centuries. This is a century-old conflict. What you see here had been going on for centuries. In fact, Jews in the first century, at the time the Bible was being, the New Testament was being written, a Jew wouldn't even go into Samaria. And if a Samaritan's shadow even fell across a Jew, the Jew would consider himself unclean and have to go home and take a bath. That's how despicable the relationship was between these two. It's called racism with a capital R. And the first step towards healing that long-standing breach seemed beyond the faith of these apostles. So when the persecution broke out, they just stayed in Jerusalem. But let me tell you, it made for a great experience for a layman. A layman who was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And I, I want to make an observation here because of some of the things we're presently involved in. And that's just this, because I think it's a good one at this point. Oftentimes, a layperson can open doors to ministry that church leaders can't get to. 
Oftentimes, lay people can do things that the church in its institutional self cannot accomplish. Oftentimes, a lay person can communicate a sincerity of faith to certain kinds of skeptical people simply because they know that you are not out necessarily to get something for them, from them or because you're being paid in some way to be good. Oftentimes, a lay person can do those kind of things, whereas the same effort by, quote, professional clergy will be cynically rejected with some kind of suspicion. There are doors that you can open to ministry, quite frankly, that I cannot open. And uh, the good news is I've seen that in the last few years. As people in our church have moved out and fanned out across our city and opened doors even to rabbis. See, that's what I'm talking about. Philip went to Samaria with a sincere faith and his allegiance to God, or excuse me, his allegiance, listen, was to God, not to his race. And that's so important in our day. Our allegiance is to God, not to our race. And if you'll see, great things happen there. Because he went into Samaria, and look at verse 5. He began proclaiming Christ, and it says, The multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said. Verse 7, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Verse 8, and there was much rejoicing in that city. Now here's the scenario. He goes in. He simply is faithful to proclaim the truth. There's no guarantees going into Samaria. He's just simply faithful. But anytime people proclaim the truth, this has been my experience after 20-something years, anytime anyone goes in and starts proclaiming the truth, multitudes gather. The better they do it, the bigger the crowds. You can't hold them back. And evidently Philip was good at that. And then two powerful experiences result. Do you see them there in verse 7? Unclean spirits come out of people. I'd like to say it this way for our day. People come clean. Then secondly, it says paralyzed people were healed. Maybe we could even broaden that to say with the preaching of the word, people get unstuck in life. They start moving again. It's not just physical healing. It's spiritual healing as well. And it says in verse 8 that everyone rejoiced. And my question is, does that happen today? Has that been happening around you at all? Have you seen any of those kind of things recently? Because this to me is not the abnormal Christian life we're seeing here. It should be the normal Christian life. When Christians are full of the Spirit, when they act in faith, when they're not ashamed to proclaim truth, and that's what I loved about Rebecca Lucher's uh, testimony here today. Just going up to people and sharing. That may sound a little odd, but you know, it's not odd to a hungry person. It's not odd to somebody desperate who's burned out on worldly things and is at a dead end in life. It's not odd at all. It's a cup of cool water. Just recently, um, a man a little bit older than I was sharing with me about his experiences of coming to Fellowship Bible Church. And he came in after years of being in a troubled marriage and having difficulty with that. And there were a lot of circumstances around that I won't go into. Difficulty with his children, difficulty with his job. He'd pretty much, as these are his words, just withdrawn from life. 
Life had beat him up and it got narrower and narrower. Have you been in that, some of those kind of cases or been around people like that? Life just becomes a tunnel. And through the witness of a member of our church, that gentleman was saying he came to church one day. First time back in church in years and years and years. And he was sitting out in the audience. The reason he was sharing this with me is he said, and you came up to preach. And as you were just opening up the scriptures reading, he said, suddenly something happened to me that has never happened to me before. Tears just began to stream down my face. I, I began to weep. I embarrassed myself in the service. I had to get up and walk out and leave. I wasn't sure why, but I went outside the auditorium here and cried and cried and cried, but they were not tears of bitterness. It was like my whole spirit was opening up for the first time. It was like there was life in me again. See, that's what happened here. People get unstuck. Life starts opening up when they hear the truth. It says also here that uh, people came clean. They shouted with a loud shout, confessing their sins, these spirits going out of them. But you know, this week, for me, as we were going through the uh, Quest for Authentic Manhood seminar, I made some statements to the men about holding up Jesus Christ as history's most authentic man. And I pointed out that he was the the premier example of true masculinity. And that if men follow in his footsteps, here's some of the marks of life you begin to see in them. They stop making excuses for their pain. They begin to do something about it. They stop blaming others for their hurts and misfortunes. They start proactively moving to correct those things. Like Jesus, they start stepping forward courageously and taking responsibility for not only their own life, but for the lives of those people who are within their care and their charge. They own up to their leadership responsibilities. They stop complaining about the fact that their marriage is unraveling and they start initiating to heal their marriage. They stop complaining that if their ex-wife had to done this and this, they would be okay. And they go to their ex-wife and they ask forgiveness for their own personal sin in that destroyed marriage. They stop making excuses for their debt and they start paying them off, even if it's just a little bit at a time. They stop mourning over their past sins and they start with a courageous faith seeking to do something about it. Well, in the midst of that, I got a letter and I'm going to veil the letter a little bit because I don't want to embarrass the person at all, but one of the men in that group that evening sent a letter to his son I want, to I want you to listen to it, and I want you to hear this guy come clean. He says, Dear son, this is an attempt to tell you something that I've always wanted to share with you for a long time. And I've tried to in certain ways, but found it difficult. I want to apologize to you and say I'm deeply sorry for the pain I've caused you due to the divorce of your mother and I. The time leading up to that was, I know, awful and confusing for you. And the subsequent time that has elapsed has failed to erase the wounds. There is no point in trying to unscramble eggs and attempt to revert to before. That's not what I mean. But what I do mean is I failed you as a father through the years and not walking with God and not being the kind of man you needed Ultimately, that was what caused the divorce. 
The saddest day in my life, the most burden I've ever felt was for you and your brother the day I walked out of the house. The load was so tangible that I can recall walking stooped from emotion, unable to stand erect. I still weep over what I knew then and know better now that it would mean to you this hurt. One lesson I have learned since is that no matter what we've done to mess things up, I believe God can pick up the pieces and put them back together again to make them good. The consequences of error cannot be erased, but the benefits of His forgiveness and grace overcome so much and turn things around. Any man I have found who walks with Jesus Christ will find himself to be a new man. I hope we can be closer. I hope we can spend more time together and want our hearts and share our hearts more as time passes. Believe me, a father wants to do that. But for some reason, it's just plain difficult. I love you, son. You are doing well. I'm proud of you in many, many ways. Keep it up. Sincerely, your dad. You know what that's called? That's called coming clean. That's called not wanting any more to cover up what you did wrong. Not trying to make any more excuses, just coming to the very bottom line and saying, getting it all out with a loud voice. I'm sorry. You know what that does for people? That heals them. That brings reconciliation. That brings tremendous experiences with God. And you know what that's also called? The normal Christian life. It's not abnormal at all. It's normal. But there's more. Look at verses 14 through 17 because I'm going to skip down and continue on here in this process with Philip. It says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, well, they finally got with it. See? The laymen are leading the apostles. And so they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that these Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them and were receiving, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a little confusing, I know, for some of you, because as you go through Acts, which is a historical account, you see God doing things that are a little bit unusual. Sometimes He lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they speak in tongues. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's the flames of fire like in Pentecost and sometimes there's not. And there's no kind of normal position on the Holy Spirit and salvation and all that as you move through the book of Acts. And this passage is one of those and it's led to all kinds of quirky doctrines where people say, well, yeah, you've received Christ and you've believed, but you're not really saved because you hadn't got the Holy Spirit. We need to lay our hands on you. Stuff like that. But I think when you look at it from the history of the Bible, there comes a much clearer understanding of what's taking place. I've already mentioned it about this disconnect between the Jews and Samaritans. And so to me, the most plausible answer of why the Samaritans believed in Jesus Christ and yet did not receive the Holy Spirit as you and I do when we come to Christ, why there was a delay is because what is taking place here is the need for the Jews to be connected to the Samaritans through the leadership of the apostles. And what goes on here is God unifies the church under apostolic leadership rather than by allowing it to be diversified along racial lines. Let me read you Ray Steadman, the great preacher of another day. He said this, If the Holy Spirit had come upon these Samaritan disciples when they first believed in Jesus Christ, there could easily have developed a church of the Samaritans. 
which would have been separate from the church of the Jews. Remember, the Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other, so if the Spirit of God had come upon this church when Philip first preached, there might have been two separate churches emerge. Through this delay, the Spirit of God was saying, there are not two churches, only one, and I want it to be led by my apostles. Now, that's a first century experience, but now let me ask you, is that abnormal or is that normal? In other words, is the Spirit of God, even to this day, trying to draw people of all races under one church? I think He is. And I think that's normal. And I think He is still seeking to remind us that we are missing an even greater experience when our churches are racially divided rather than spiritually unified under Jesus Christ and the Scriptures. And I believe God wants that. I mean, sure, there are going to be neighborhoods and locales where the majority of people making up a particular church are going to be of one kind of color or another. That's just going to happen normally because of distance and proximity and those kind of things. But when the church becomes all white or all black or all yellow, I think we miss an even greater experience. I really do. And I don't think it's right. Some years ago, if you were here in the church some years ago, I preached a message and I talked about some of my, well, I guess I could call them frustrations uh, because I think that's what they were. But they were frustrations over trying to reach out to some of the leaders in the African-American community. And uh, I've, I've tried to do that and I've tried to get our church to do that with leadership, white and black. And some of that was not taken the way I wanted it to be taken. And so I, I drew back and they drew back and we went back to our own Jerusalems. And I'm glad for so many of you who've reached out in the inner city, who joined with things like Helping Hands, uh, with the St. Mark's Baptist Church down on 12th Street with Steve Arnold, the, the African-American pastor there who I really count as a good friend and other things. There's been some good movement. But on this occasion, as I moved with the circle of black leaders, there was some tension. And uh, the events that we wanted to pull off together came off, but not as I'd expected. But uh, not long ago, a member of our church gave to one of those men the tape that I did two years ago. And I want you to listen to the letter this pastor sent me. He says, a member of your congregation recently shared a tape on a sermon you preached at Fellowship. I've been listening and re-listening to it because it deals with racism. For me, it's the first sermon I have heard by anybody from the evangelical tradition who happens to be white. So I'm writing to thank you for doing so with what must have been obedience to the Holy Spirit. But then he shares this. I was convicted by your remarks about your frustrations in developing enduring relationships with African-Americans and your hope that white and African-American Christians could begin to fashion what Dr. Elton Trueblood called redemptive fellowships. I recall Jim Allen from your body trying to meet with me in his patient efforts to get to know me. And I recall my reservations and suspicions and my cynicism 
I shall not defend that response because whatever its subjective basis may have been in terms of my own experience, I was still resisting what I sensed then and now believe to have been an invitation, listen, an invitation from the Holy Spirit to begin meaningful cross-racial fellowships with a member of the white evangelical movement. And so I would ask you to accept my apology for my reaction and my sincere hope that you will not be discouraged from seeking to build those relationships. I would appreciate talking with you about our perspective should you desire to do so. The Holy Spirit has been dealing with me along these same lines over the past several months. So I called him. We're having lunch. See, this is the movement of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit doesn't organize around racial lines. He organizes around the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the Word of God. And that's a wonderful experience. It's a wonderful experience. And here in this verse, that's exactly what's taking place. These guys are having just this kind of experience. And so they go down and they lay hands on and the people receive the Holy Spirit and they all rejoice that they're now unified. I also like this text because these guys, these church leaders are connecting with the people and laying their hands on them. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but people need for leaders from the church community to gather, whether they're community leaders, whether they're season of life pastors, whether they're teaching pastors, whether the elder board, people need to feel the hands on of people as they pray because it connects them with the church. And I believe when people go and confess their hurts and people gather together and pray over one another, you know, things happen. Now, now, now some of you probably think, well, that's not happened much to me. Well, you know, when we did the National Day of Prayer and we all gathered, at least some of us did in the Special Events Center and we prayed for one another. And there were people coming with hurts and we got to pray over them. Some of those people were not connected to the church. They were just in need. But by officials of the church, elders praying over them, it connected them to the church. And did God do some things? Did God do anything that night? Was that just an exercise in futility? No. There were things happening. In fact, I got a letter from one here. <laughs> Set you up good, didn't I? There was a couple who came, I don't know if they were going to our church, but they came and they came in tremendous tears to Mike Robinson and I at our little station. And I hope you join us in the future when we have those evenings with the elders. I mean, it gives us a body a chance to touch one another and pray for one another. So they came forward and they discussed their situation and they were really hurting because uh, they're an infertile couple and they've been trying for a long time to have a child and she was just weeping uncontrollably about that situation. And so Mike and I put our hands on them and we prayed over them that God might work in their life, whether it was to bring about an adoption or somehow help them have a child. But, but I prayed in specifically because I was praying over her that her heart might be drawn back to Jesus first. And if her condition were to remain what it was, that she might be content in that. So she wrote me, it's interesting, she quotes from Psalm 34, the one I started with, but she says this, Dear Mr. Lewis, on the National Day of Prayer in May, my husband and I came to the church with a heavy heart. An adoption had just fallen through, and so my heart was full of discontent and questioning of God's justice. We came forward, and you and another elder laid hands on us and prayed for us, that we might have children, but if not now, that we would find contentment. I've been wanting to write and tell you how God really began to help me find contentment. 
even to the point of wondering why I wanted children so desperately. Then she makes this great statement. My life became complete and whole that night. See, that's the normal Christian experience when people pray in faith. My life became complete and whole that night. Then she has some little dots. She says, well, anyway, wouldn't you know it? It would be just like God to choose this time in our lives for children. I found out I was pregnant. (laughs) There has been much rejoicing in the Burnett household. We wanted to thank you for your prayers that night. But then they say this, which I think is part of why we were there. We just bought a house in Conway and we've decided to attend Fellowship Bible Church there. You're affecting lives. See, it's really good to join with people and praying over them and seeing God work in some spectacular ways. And that's what he was doing here around Philip's leadership, his lay leadership, to be a man of God. Well, let's go on because the experiences don't stop. You see Philip now being taken away and going and having a witnessing experience. It says, and so when, verse 25, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back, that is the apostles, to Jerusalem. And notice what they start doing. (laughs) They start preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, what they were originally supposed to do. But now they start doing it. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Notice in parentheses it says, This is a desert road. It was out in nowhere. And I'm sure Philip could have said, What in the world am I supposed to do going down there? But see, he's full of faith. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Boy, what a setup for a witnessing opportunity. But you know, when you're full of faith and you're willing to share and you're not ashamed of the gospel and you're looking for opportunities, I personally believe that God will from time to time move your heart to move into situations that, well, they're a little uncomfortable. And they're going to require some faith to go, but you're going to feel prompted to go. Let let me just ask you, how many of you in this room have felt at some point in your life prompted just in an unusual way to go share your faith with somebody? Let me just see your hands. Anybody here? Okay. So evidently, that's the normal Christian experience. I can remember when I managed some apartments in Oregon and some young boys were next door. They were just graduated from high school. They were in college and they were party animals with a capital P-A. And I I had talked to them some and I remember one night uh, they told me they were going to have a a party and and I told them, I said, well, listen, just hold it down. You know, there's others here and those kind of things. And I said, you, you can only have so many people by law in these apartments. Well, so I drove up that night after being out. They probably had 120 people crammed into their two-bedroom apartment. And I mean, the music was unbelievable. The whole apartment complex was shaking. So I went and went inside and I was thinking, now what am I going to do? You know, if I go over there and try to break that thing up, that's going to be a madhouse. So I just began to pray, Lord, what can I do? I mean, I was responsible for that. And I felt the most incredible prompting to go share my faith. (laughs) Go! And that's going into the desert now. And so I thought about it for quite a while. And I got up. My wife said, where are you going? I said, I was going to go share my faith with these guys. And she thought I was crazy. 
But I went in the apartment and, uh, you know, it's just like the Lord to give you kind of an idea as you're going over there. And so I walked in. I mean, this place was, un it was just packed. And I walked in there and the two guys came up and they were patting me. Hey, the apartment manager's here, those kind of things. And I said, listen, I said, if you'll give me five minutes, I'll let you do whatever you want to do the rest of the night. Man, their eyes lit up and said, he turned down the music. The apartment manager said we could do whatever we want if we'll just give him five minutes. So they turned off the music. Everybody sat down and I shared my faith. <laughs> I did. I shared. I, I said, you know, I want to I want to tell you guys, I, I've been where you've been. And I want to tell you where I found a new life. And I shared how I came to know Jesus Christ. When I was finishing up sharing how I came to know Christ, two girls sitting right down in front of me started crying. Just started weeping. And they started saying, we're miserable in life. We don't want to be here. And by the end of the evening, which the party broke up pretty quick at that point. <laughs> but by the end of the evening, I had, I had 10 or 12 college-age kids sitting around me asking me questions about how to come to know Jesus Christ. Now, is that normal or abnormal? Well, in some ways it's abnormal, but for... <laughs> Because you're not going to probably do those kind of crazy things. But in another way, they're not so abnormal. Because I listen to things you guys tell me that you've done with people and how you've bumped into people and how Rebecca Lucher is talking to a nurse out of the blue. And that's wild. But let me tell you, it is so powerful in Christ. It's effective in the Spirit. Well, by the Spirit... Philip meets this Ethiopian eunuch. Look at verse 34, because look what takes place. It says, and the eunuch answered Philip. Now he's shared his faith. He said, did you know what you're reading? The eunuch doesn't. That's why, by the way, we need to be out there doing things like the one-to-one. -one. Gives us a great chance to explain the Christian faith with a good, solid foundation. And Philip did that because he had Isaiah 53. And man, what a gospel text. So he shares. And then the eunuch answered Philip and says, please tell me of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or someone else, and Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. But the eunuch saw him no, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. Let me ask you, does stuff like that happen today? You know, we have a common cause group in our church that works with the uh, regional interfaith network called RAIN that works with people who have contracted AIDS. And uh, we're the only evangelical church in that organization. But there's been some courageous people from fellowship get involved in that. And a number of months ago, they were given their first patient. And they begin to reach out to this young man and his family and interact with him and love him because he's in the desert. And what do you do when dad's got HIV? But because of their love and support and care for this young man, because of their willingness to go, just go, it became a marvelous experience. Because this young man had had an experience with Christ back when he was 16. But as he told me the other day in my office, you know, he had rejected so much of that. 
and gone his own independent way and trouble had resulted and those kind of things. But now because of this group coming to him, this group modeling Jesus Christ to him, this group loving him, his whole perspective on life has started to change. He began in his family attending our church. He rededicated his life to Christ. And then one day when he was with this group, he said to them, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me? Well, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I sure do. I'm excited about what I'm experiencing. So today at 4 o'clock, we're having a baptismal service. And I have the privilege of baptizing this young man in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. A disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the real church at work. That's the church that's making a difference in the world. Look at verse 40. The text ends, But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And tradition says that's where he stayed as one of the great teachers and evangelists in that area. Have you had the privilege of leading somebody to Jesus Christ? Are you full of faith and the Holy Spirit? Do you sense His leadership in your life? Is your Christianity experiential or is it just liturgical? Is it a real life? Is it a living faith? Is it a dynamic movement? Are there moments along the way where you know God is at work in you and through you? Christ in us, the Scripture says, the hope of glory. Maybe a good question for some of you before we leave here this morning is this. Have you had the first experience? I don't want to assume that. And the first experience is just coming to know Jesus Christ. <laughs> Have you had the first experience of, you've been in church and all that, but I'm talking about the first experience of you saying, I don't know this stuff. I understand, I've been in church enough maybe to understand Jesus Christ died for men's sin. I know it, I know it. I hadn't tasted it. It's not going to happen until you come surrendered and offer yourself up to Him and just say, I want you, Lord. I want you. You in my life. I want you to lead me. I believe in you. You see, until you do that, you don't tap into the real thing. You just look at it like someone in a museum observing a great masterpiece but you don't become part of that masterpiece without faith. So I want to close this morning by having you just close with your eyes and bow your head. I'm going to step off this and get down with the real people. And I just want you to do this. If you want to know Jesus Christ, it is as simple as this. Just pray with me and ask Him to come into your life. Would you? If you've never done that, I want you to ask Him in. I want to urge you to do that because you're going to go through this whole life and miss the greatest experience of your life, and that's knowing God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And if you want to know Him, would you pray this prayer with me? Father, I need You, and I need this new life. And so I open up my life, and I invite You to come into my life 
to save me from my sin, which Jesus Christ has paid for on the cross. But then, because you raised Jesus from the dead, to send Jesus to live in me by His Spirit so that He could lead me the way He did these men that we read about all the time in the Scriptures. I want to know you. I want to be your child. I want to have a living faith. And so by faith, I asked you to come into my life to begin to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Lord, I want the greatest experience of life, and that's knowing you. With our heads bowed, I'd say, if you did that in sincere faith, get ready for a great experience. And for those of us who have known Jesus Christ in the past, but our life has kind of been dull, I pray that you this morning would recommit yourself to a life of faith. That each day you would say to Jesus Christ, I want you to lead me. I want to sense the supernatural stream. I want to be standing in it being part of the kingdom moving forward. Father, we thank you for all this. Thank you for this great text, but most of all for the great morning of just loving you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.